to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. Okay, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 4 in the New Testament. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. So last Sunday the, it was the first out of two sermons, and the message was titled The Temptation of Christ, right? What he endured in the wilderness. The devil came to tempt him. We answered a lot of questions like, why is this even in here? What did it mean? What happened? How does it affect us? So today is going to be the second sermon. We're going to look at this in five parts. And basically, we look at a few things is, uh, what were these temptations? So the first one was the temptation for Jesus to turn the stones into bread. What does it mean? Uh, if you look at the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life in First John 2, we can look at this as the lust of the flesh. And we talked about how Jesus overcame it. And then sort of a similar temptation, maybe Satan doesn't ask us to turn stones into bread, but he does try to tempt us about our flesh, you know, our physical desires, cravings, etc., needs, um, which some of which may not even be sinful. But how does that translate into our everyday life? And, you know, as Christians, we're really supposed to, you know, accentuate the physical or, the, excuse me, the spiritual and attenuate the, sp- the physical. That's very important, right? So how did Jesus overcome it? How do we overcome it? The second temptation that we covered was the devil showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and says, just bow down and worship me. You can have them all. Of course, uh, that would have been a temptation to take a shortcut uh, notwithstanding the problem of worshiping Satan. Of course, Jesus, as with all the temptations, rejected that temptation, but you can see that as the lust of the eyes, right? In that category, First John 2. You see some parallels here. Um, again, what did it mean to Jesus? It would have meant he wouldn't have to go to the cross, which would have been a problem for all of us. He also would have got the marred or the sin-marred version of creation. And when Jesus, of course, rightly pushed it aside and he, he does it right, he's going to get the glorious version of the kingdoms of the world, and that's a future occurrence. But what does the lust of the uh, eyes mean to, to us, right? And how are we bombarded? I talked about that. How are we bombarded with images, uh, you know, on our cell phones and our computers and advertisements and driving down the highway. Like there's all these billboards. We're constantly assaulted with temptations for the lust of the eyes, right? How did Jesus deal with it and how do we deal with it, right? We talked about the way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which I call the escape hatch scripture. So whenever we're presented with a temptation, there is a way out. God always provides a way out. It's right in the scripture. And I'll be the first one to admit whenever I sin, if I look back, I can always say, well, that was the way out and I didn't take it. You know, we have to be real with ourselves, okay? Uh, Ephesians 2 tells us about the assaults that come to tempt us and try us with, you know, the world system, uh, the flesh, and the devil. These three things. And how do we deal with them? 
right? However, it's very important to understand that, and I've said this before, that the devil can provide this smorgasbord of temptation and set it in front of you, but he can't grab you and make you take hold of it. That comes from our own carnal desires inside that, you know, so God has provided boundaries, right? He, the devil can't force us to engage in these temptations, right? God is, has, has limited him. However, when we look at to, to see what Jesus did, we can do the same thing and be victorious in our own lives. So we'll check it out. We'll look at the third one, and then we'll see what happens here. So let's read it again. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan. Remember, we talked about John baptizing in the Jordan, what that meant. So there's a contiguity in, in history here. And was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted, can also mean tested, for 40 days by the devil. And in those days, he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are, can be translated, since you are, the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, it is written. And of course, he quotes Deuteronomy 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. We talked about what that means. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. How this happened exactly is, you wonder, but listen, this is the, the spiritual world. Um, they have ways of doing things that we're not familiar with. Jesus totally understood what he was trying to convey to him. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you. And their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So this is the part we're going to cover this morning. Then he, the devil, brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. We're going to come back to this because Satan is picking and choosing the scriptures that he wants and stringing them together as if it was a complete thought. So he's taking God's word out of context, and we'll look at that. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So the first part out of five is this temptation of this, what I would call a swan dive off the temple roof, uh, landing safely, and everyone is amazed. Now if you understand uh, the old with the way the temple was created, what it looked like. Temple was a very, uh, at the pinnacle, was a very high portion of the building. And there was a certain corner of the temple that overlooked what was known and still there today as the Kidron Valley, right? So if Jesus would have jumped off the temple, if you add the, the amount of feet to the ground and then add, he keeps going, and then adds that valley it was a swan dive of well over 100 feet. Now, you have to think about this. If people were worshiping in the temple and they, you know, nobody belongs on the roof, so they would have been, hey, look, there's that guy up there, there's Jesus. They would have had everyone's attention. 
including the religious leaders. So Jesus, if he would have, he didn't do it. If he would have taken the jump, they actually would have watched him come down and then said, wow, like if he took a running start, they would have said, oh, look, he's continuing down the Kidron Valley and the angels all of a sudden appear and grab him just as he's going to hit the bottom and they carry him from the valley up to where the, on, the, you know, the onlookers are, they would have been like, ooh, that would have been amazing. So it's a temptation, right? According to the devil's interpretation, just do it. You know, you, you have problems with these hypocritical religious leaders. They will immediately see you as the Messiah once you do this. Well, the implication is to force the hand of God. Tell God what you want. There's actually doctrines in Christianity that repeat this stuff. You know, the prosperity gospel. And I've heard these teachers because I have to. I have to know this stuff. And it's just very strange. They say, just keep repeating it. Tell God what you want. You want that mansion on the cul-de-sac. You want that promotion to be the sea. Just keep saying it. And it becomes like a mantra. And even Jesus said not to bombard Pepper God with repetitive, mindless prayers. And we're going to get to that at some point. Um, But this is the prosperity gospel. Tell God what you want. Instead of not my will, but God's will, it becomes not thy will, but my will. Right? You're testing God. You're daring him. You know, you're putting him, manipulating. And again, does it, can you manipulate God? No. But you're putting God in a position to um, force him to save you or to do something in your life because of your choices. So here Satan takes, a, I would say, a devilishly brilliant maneuver where he's now starting to quote scripture, right? The first two temptations, Jesus was answering those temptations with quoting scripture. How, but here Satan now changes his MO and he starts quoting scripture. Now, if you look at where this comes from, this comes from Psalm 91, 11 through 12. Now, if you actually read Psalm 91, what you find is it's full of hyperbole and it's full of metaphors. It's very powerful and it, it's really about a relationship with God, a walk with God, um, but there's a lot of power in that. Now, Satan, instead of, right, he says, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, he omits in all your ways. That's key because walking with God, is, it's a lifestyle. It's a relationship. It's a walk. It's not a hyper-focusing on what you want. You know, in any relationship, marriage, friends, otherwise, if one party is always trying to get their will done to the other party and they don't give anything, well, that, that, that relationship is going to end in estrangement, to say the least. So the problem is that Satan quotes the scripture out of context. And folks, you can take anything in this book and quote it out of context and make a whole doctrine or religion out of that. That's why it's so important to know the scripture. And I see this as a really big problem in cultural Christianity with the rise of, and there's some good TV preachers, but there's a lot of them that aren't good. There's some good internet preachers, but if you spend all your day on the internet looking at some of these preachers, you're going to get confused if you don't know the word because the Bible says that Satan comes as an angel of light and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. And there's plenty of famous so-called ministers 
that are trying to deceive you. So we have to know the word of God. So, you know, and I kind of look at this as, um, again, I've listened to him. I have transcripts before anybody gets upset with me when I say the name. Um, I've read his material. A guy like Joel Osteen. You know, here's a guy who has a very fleshy, carnal lifestyle. He pretty much inherited it. He wants to keep it that way. And he wrote a book called Your Best Life Now. Now, if you know the older preacher, John MacArthur, who could be a little crusty at times, but he's pretty solid in his doctrine, he said about the book, he goes, it's only your best life now if when you die you're going to hell, you're going to hell afterwards. So live it up now, right? But it's a great point. We're passing through this world. This isn't our permanent home. You know, everything we do is to build up eternal rewards or eternal treasures, like Jesus tells us. So it's important to look at that. Where the first temptation, if you look at the stones to, to bread, God isn't taking care of my needs, so I need to take care of business myself. I'm, I'm kind of doing a paraphrase here. The second temptation, the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, translation, God is taking too long to take care of my needs. The third temptation, which we just read, God's not taking care of my needs the best way possible, so I'm either going to do it myself or I'm going to force his hand. You see see where we're going with this? And if we don't delve into the scripture and really meditate on it, we don't understand how these three temptations have anything to do with us. But if you actually meditate on it and study it, you realize it has everything to do with us. But Jesus thankfully conquered and he showed us the way. So the temptation to Jesus is make it easier for yourself. Why suffer? You jump off that roof and, and swan dive into that valley and all of a sudden they see you come back up again? Man, you'll get, a, you'll get a lot of likes on Facebook. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of people that'll really like you. I'm being funny. Could you imagine if Jesus was around today with social media? Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. He'd get like a, a, a nasty gram from the Facebook fact checkers. This violates our community standards, you know? So, whatever. It's, the stuff we deal with today is just, it's just so incredibly silly. Um, whatever. Temptation, I'll leave that alone. Temptation is self-promotion. Imagine how the Herods would have seen this. Imagine how the religious leaders would have seen this. They would have immediately said, well, he's got to be the Messiah. How do you deny? Even if they didn't want to. But again, that's not, Jesus had to go to the cross. He, he wasn't supposed to do it this way, the shortcut route. And to us, you know, it's the realm of popularity and self-promotion. Almost like some of these doctrines where God is a genie in the bottle. You rub the, the bottle, and so three temptations, three wishes. Genie comes out, gives you three wishes. He goes back in the bottle. That is not God. God respects himself. We're, we're to have a relationship with God, not be users and takers. It's supposed to go in two directions. And the truth is, don't test God. Don't do that. If you're really God, you'll do this. It's, it's immature. Deuteronomy 6.16 he gives, Jesus gives the answer to that. Um, you know, giving God ultimatums. I've seen some famous uh, people and someone who's not a Christian or is a new believer, they get scared when they see every so often, every few months, every year, uh, some famous Christian person, personality will come up and say, I've 
turned my back on God. I'm not following God anymore. And they come out like petulant children. And, and people come up to me. They're worried. I'm like, they might not have even been saved to begin with. How do you walk with Christ and share his good fruits and share a relationship with him and say, well, because he didn't do something for you, you're leaving him. Well, what about the persecuted church, right? They suffer a lot, and they still continue to, to share that sweet fellowship with Christ. Um, you know, the signs and wonders generation. Lord, do a trick, do a magic trick. And if you don't do it, well, then you must not really be there. So therefore, I can't follow you anymore. Again, as believers, we're supposed to practice modesty. We're supposed to blend into the church, not have this idea from the world and bring it into the church. I'm number one, and God needs to honor that. He's number one. We need to fall in line. So 1 John 2.16, which we covered, here's a parallel scripture in John is this is, so you saw the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. This one is parallel to the pride of life. This one's fascinating because the first two temptations, Jesus is being tempted, or if it's us, we're being tempted. However, this last one is a reversal. Because now we're tempting God. Understand that word is uh, temptation. When you look in the original Greek in the New Testament, depending on the context, can mean a, a temptation, something that you desire, or a trial or a testing, right? You're being put on, on a trial to do something. So in this one, it's a reverse where we are normally the recipients to, of the temptation. We turn it around and tempt God to do something. So I'm so glad I kind of did the first two last Sunday and this one this Sunday because there's a lot of differences between the first or among the first two and the third temptation. So I'm trying to bring that out to manipulate God, to get our will done, or even to show off, right? You, you know, the, it's, when I was younger, you would call it somebody was a show off. They're always doing something to get attention. Well, Jesus resisted that temptation to show off to everyone to get attention. But today, especially in cultural Christianity, some people still do that. And the psychology behind this, this showing off is, and again, I'll just put it in my own words, whatever I ask for, I get. You ever meet somebody like that? Like they always have to be better than the rest of the folks in their social strata. They always have to be on top. Whatever you do or whatever you get, they have to get better. And it's immature. But to some, it actually carries into, into Christianity, and it's not supposed to. Or, my faith is stronger than yours. Look what God did for me. Or, my life is perfect. Yours stinks. Or, really, don't you want to be me? <laughs> so, again, Jesus rejected this, but some today still practice it, and that's a problem. Listen, it's okay to be blessed. It's okay to have blessings, but do we want to be braggarts? And the answer is no. My personal feelings on this is, like, whatever, if social media carries a lot of different, uh, I guess, apps. At my age, I'm tr still trying to learn the lingo, whether it's Facebook, Instagram. We talked about the the uh, psychological studies on Instagram to teen girls, how devastating that is, um, even Facebook. And, and it, it can cause a, a depression depending on who you're surrounded with. You know, listen, life is filled with ups and downs, folks. I have my ups and downs. I certainly don't want to present myself. All I have is Facebook. I don't know what I'm doing. 
you know, I tried Instagram. I, it's, to me, it's, I can't figure it out. Maybe some 18-year-old can show me how to do it. But I just, I just abandoned it. I don't know what I'm doing. So anyway, so I'm still on Facebook. And what I try to do is, I, in my, on my wall, I try to talk about world events. You know, how does it fit in the scripture? I talk about uh, encouraging things from scripture. And, of course, my pets. <laughs> so <laughs> my pets get the most likes. My pets get more likes than I do. So they, they're funny. They're comical. They're rescue dogs. And I, t- I take snapshots and videos of them. This has nothing to do with the message, by the way. Um, <laughs> Yeah, go off on these tangents. <laughs> but the point is, what was the point? The point is, is how do we conduct ourselves? Like, I would feel terrible if I put, I don't want to be paranoid because, you know, I don't even know how many friends I have. You know, some people say, oh, I got unfriended somebody. I got to find out who it is. I don't really care <laughs> how many I have from day to day. It doesn't bother me. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to do anything to hurt anyone's feelings. I wouldn't want to present myself as a perfect life where nothing ever goes wrong. And somebody who's struggling maybe with depression or addictions um, looks at that and they feel like less than a person. I would feel terrible. So I I do have to say that I do restrict myself sometimes for the sake of, talk about loving your neighbor. You can love your neighbor by the way you interact on social media. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Verse 13, it says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. Two out of five is, can we get similar results? And the answer is yes. Yes. Right? A lot of things that are in here uh, are here because Jesus was trying to show us the way. Not only did he give us eternal life, you know, some people are like, oh, I just want to get to heaven. Well, he also wants us to um, have a fulfilled life here. It's not like we have a death wish. We become Christians. Oh, I can't wait to, you know, get to... I can't wait to, whatever, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying. Uh, so what Jesus is trying to show us is while we're in this world, how do you negotiate this world? The twists and turns, the ups and downs, he showed us the way. And the devil departed until an opportune time. And we know that uh, the spiritual realm, the demonic realm, is always trying to get us to get tripped up or pull us further away from God. So we should stay close to God and... That's pretty much that issue there. Now, I'm going to jump to verse 38, and you're probably going to ask me, so I'm just going to give you an answer before I do that, is that next Sunday, there's the center of Luke, to me, goes together as a package. So I'm jumping to 38 to 39, then 40 through 44, and then next Sunday, we're going to, we're going to go back to the, the issue of Jesus in the synagogue and what happened there. So 38. Now, he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. So Jesus now, he's, he's been through the baptism. He's been through the, uh, the prophecies that, you know, he fulfilled the prophecies of his coming. Uh, he has been through the temptation. And now what we start to see is him really getting engaged into what we understand as his, his ministry that he did until the crucifixion. So verse 38, now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon or Simon Peter's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. So three, Peter's mother-in-law healed. Now some believe that Peter was the first pope, but according to this, Peter was married. He had a mother-in-law, which means he had a wife. And we're going to get to other uh, writers outside of the Bible that 
uh, attested to the fact that Peter was married. And it's actually a good thing for clergy to marry. Some don't, and that's fine. But there's nothing wrong with clergy being married, as we see here. So we saw Jesus, we see Jesus use his power appropriately to, to have mercy on this woman. He mercifully heals her. And this is a sickness that could have taken her life, right? Clement of Alexandria later wrote that Peter's wife was such a great help in ministry and attended to the needs of the women. But you know what Jesus did? He won her over. He goes into the house. He sees something is wrong. He is God the Son, and he uses his divine power not for himself, but to mercifully help uh, Peter's wife's mother, right? Dr. Luke uses the word immediately. Now, this is uh, fascinating because if you... If you've lived long enough, you've had a sickness, you've had a virus, and there's, there's sort of these stages to the virus, right? We, you know, a lot of people have been so interested since COVID about viruses and how they affect us, and they've been doing that for thousands of years. They have a, a very similar um, way that they, they do their thing, and they, they get transmitted to us, and then they, they start the uh, infection process, and sometimes you don't feel anything, and then it becomes full-blown, right? It starts to attack our cells, and it replicates itself, and then your immune system wakes up and says, oh, we've got to fight this thing, and then your body actually produces the fever to help. I have a nurse here, <laughs> a few nurses here, uh, to help you to fight it and to kill this thing along with other um, methods. And I know, and I could ask anyone who's been there, what happens when the fever breaks? We're tired. We're tired. I remember a few years back, I, I had a, a, a virus, and the last few steps on the way down uh, from the bedroom to the, the living room, I fell down the stairs, you know. Um, I should have been holding the banister, but uh, you just, you, I just was so woozy and dizzy, and I went boom, 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 boom. And now I had a sickness, and now I got banged up at the same time. And I'm like, this really stinks. But the point is that when, when the fever breaks, you're tapped because your body now has to recover, right? You have to regain that nutrition. You have to regain homeostasis. You have to, your body has to start now getting out of fighting and infection mode and getting you back to normal. And I got to tell you, when, when the fever breaks, I, I never slept so good. You know what I'm saying? That's the only good thing about getting sick is that when it's over, you just 10 hours, 12 hours, my wife will knock on the door. You still, you still alive? I'm like, yeah, just give me a few more hours, you know? And then your body has to recuperate. But why do I bring all this up? Because Peter's uh, mother-in-law gets up and she serves them, it tells us. She arose and she served them. Again, this is an attitude of gratefulness. So Peter's, uh, Peter's wife sees what happens with, his, with her, her mother, and she, according to historians, is a huge part of Peter's ministry. Um, but we also see that Peter's mother-in-law is so grateful for what happened Instead of that, that fatigue, she's like, i got all this energy. She's immediately healed. So whatever Jesus did, he put everything back in the right places. And when God does something, he does it to perfection. There was no recovery stage. She just pop, popped up and, you know, hey, can I take your plate and stuff like that. So I, it's, it's, I don't know, it, it's me. I like detail, so I, will, I usually pull out the detail in here, and that's what I see. Verse 40, last few verses. It says, now when the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him, to Jesus. 
And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. I'll get to that. And now, when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. Going to get to that too. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. He was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. So four Jesus ministers throughout Galilee. Right? He lays hands on every sick person and they recover a hundred percent. And there were demonic presences too. So somebody might have been very sick or acting just very self-destructive and family members would take them by force and bring them to see Jesus. And some of them were possessed with demons. So there was this interaction, this spiritual interaction that manifested itself physically through words and actions and, you know, pre, when he was demon possessed, he's not in his right mind, doesn't care for himself. When the demon is called out, all of a sudden he's uh, cohesive, he's lucid, and he's having a, a discussion, right? So he does this. Now, there's, I look at two reasons here why he shut up the demons from saying too much. Um, and you wonder wh- why would the demons say, well, you, you're the son of God. It's like, aren't they doing him a favor? The problem was that Jesus knew this intuitively that eventually they were going to blow his cover. So when you look at the scripture, Jesus followed all the prophecies, including the one where he was to present himself as the Messiah. But this is early on in his ministry, and it wasn't that time yet. So he would rebuke the demons, and he would slowly feed the fact that he was God to his followers as much as they could swallow it. Like we've had 2,000 years of Christianity and we still don't understand some of the stuff that we read in the Bible and we say, I need somebody to help me with this. I want to know the answer to this. So could you imagine how they're seeing Jesus? He looked like a person. He had skin. He bled. He took naps, right? He ate and... But he was also God. So that whole concept today is difficult for some. Could you imagine what the population struggled with when he was actually there? I mean, they had seen prophets before, but they hadn't seen anything like Jesus. And there's even demons are coming out and such. So I look at the other reasons. So there's two reasons I believe that um, he didn't want the demons to speak and he rebuked them is because Evil does tell the truth at times when they can mix it with a little bit of lies to deceive us. Well, we just covered that in the temptation, didn't we? Satan quoted the Bible. Oh, bravo, bravo, Lucifer. No, no, no. He took it out of context on purpose to elicit a response that was against what God's plans were. So Jesus shuts them up. I know, I, I just love the details in here. That's why I love teaching this gospel. And I'm, I just picked things out of it. Uh, so he wanted to make sure that they were quiet and didn't deceive the people. Remember, this it's new, it's early. And he, as the Son of God, as God the Son, and, and the voice or the logos, the word of God, that's what the people needed to listen to. Now, my question to us is, who are we listening to? Right? Just like the images that we see on our computers and phones, there's a lot of voices out there. I submit to you that in, in our day and age, you know, people 100 years ago without all these distractions probably had more 
clarity time, more free time, being out in nature, maybe not hearing anything, maybe listening to the small voice of God. But today we hear all of these voices. It's on the TV, it's on the radio, it's uh, conversations, it's turning on the evening news. Those are probably the worst voices to listen to. Uh, But there's a lot of voices out there. However, the Bible tells us a lot that God has a gentle voice. He speaks to us with a still small voice. See, God respects himself. He's not going to say, well, nobody's listening to me. You're listening to, uh, let me speak louder. That's not what God does. He's like, when you're ready to focus on me, I'm here to talk to you. And unfortunately, we have to fight that battle even as Christians because we're bombarded with, we're assaulted in the eyes, we're assaulted in the ears, and we're assaulted in our brains. We're constantly taking in information and data. So God's still small voice. I'll leave you with this, and then we'll close. Um, About 30 years ago, I'm dating myself, I went to Rutgers University, right, four years, New Brunswick, and I'm thankful. You know, I did have a lot of science, uh, you know, teachings and biology and chemistry and mathematics, all kinds of neat stuff. Still have some of my textbooks that they don't use anymore, but it's fun to have them, right, memorabilia. Um, and I wasn't a Christian, so I was immersed in, I would say, the New Brunswick nightlife. Okay, that just was my thing, right? And I would, I would do just enough so my grades were good. I mean, they weren't straight A's, but I, I had this pull in, in my soul to, to be a part of this. And I don't know what it's like today. I'm, I don't want to name the street that all the bars and the clubs and stuff were on. That was me. That was my life. And there were thousands of people I met in four years, students everywhere, teachers. It just, it just, it's a very crowded portion of New Jersey. In one of my, I think it was my chemistry class, there was a guy, he was, he was a quiet person, my age, right? We were going through the same curricula, and he started witnessing to me. And I found it interesting, and he, it was so funny, witnessing, right? I didn't know any of this stuff. I wasn't a Christian. He was witnessing to me. He was evangelizing me. So he invited me to a Bible study. So I went, and there was about six or seven people in, in the dorm. And they were calm people, and they would talk about the Bible. They would talk about prophecy, and I was so intrigued. But my flesh was so drawn to my lifestyle that I didn't become a Christian in college. I tell you something, I still remember those students. I still remember their faces. I remember the dorm. So when you talk about God in that still, small voice, New Brunswick is huge. Rutgers just takes up three different townships, maybe more, since I left there. But this small group of Christians was this little light that I still remember. Something really neat, my wife remembers this. We were in Pennsylvania at doing something, going to, I don't know, one of those places you go in Pennsylvania. And I saw the guy. And I said, I was so excited. I said, Heather, Heather, he's the guy who witnessed to me. This was like seven or eight years ago. And... uh I came up to him and I said, bro, do you remember me? He smiled. He goes, I do. I said, you should have witnessed harder to me back then. (laughs) You should have pushed me a little harder. We laughed and I told him I was a pastor and he was so blown away. And um, never saw him after that. But it's almost like God blessed me by allowing me to see somebody in my formative years who who did witness. And, And then when I got saved, I remembered him and I remembered all the people that witnessed to me. So, you know, it... Sometimes in Christianity, the idea is, well, the world is big and Hollywood is big. So in Christianity, we have to be bigger. No, we don't. 
That's a lie. Everyone in this room can do something small to minister to somebody. You can reach people that I can't, right? But, you know, the, the Bible tells us not to despise the small things. We have to get out of our minds big, 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 because if we're brainwashed by big, we'll never do anything because we'll think it's insignificant. But collectively, Christians can change the world if every Christian does something small. We can do so much bigger and greater, right? Jesus said um, that you would do greater things. Now, Jesus didn't say that we were greater than him and we could achieve deity. That's impossible. But what he meant was that when he was was to be crucified, die for our sins, buried, resurrected, and then ascend into heaven, he would leave us with the Holy Spirit. And collectively, we could do more over 2,000 years than he could do with the time that he was on the earth. Again, let me make this very clear. We're not better than Jesus, but he was talking about in an aggregate, aggregate sense. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? So last part is verse 42. We're going to see this a lot. When it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place, and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. Today, it's all about the big crowds, isn't it? Even in some of these ministries. But Jesus did his best work, number one, one-on-one, God the Son, God the Father. Okay, that was very important at alone time. But also with small groups of people. And that's what he taught his disciples, go out two by two. So you're going to be spread out, 70 of them, two by two. And there's only two followers were going to go to the village. Just two, whole village. But he was trying to show them the importance of that one-on-one, that personal relationship. So five is always commune with God, right? Always commune with God. Let me close with this. Whether we're talking about temptations we covered the last two Sundays, right, or we just, what we just ended with, we can never go wrong with staying close to God. This is not a religion that we're preaching. Jesus didn't preach religion or denomination. He preached personal relationship. And we have that personal relationship with God the Son. Some of you have been listening to sermons in Luke and liking what you're hearing. But at some point, everyone needs to take the plunge. Not be just spectators, but to say, you know what, I want that relationship with Christ. What does it look like? Help me out with this. We're not mediators. We don't stand, heaven forbid, between a person and their God. We just kind of show them the way and say, hey, this is how it happened with us. It's really beautiful. You should try this. Well, we'll and then we, we answer the questions from them. That's why God put a bunch of individuals in a church, in a community, so that we can help each other through this. So trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let him walk with you in this life and into eternity. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact 
at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.